Hello, I hope your day is going well. What we're going to explore this time on the podcast is synesthesia, which is one of my recent obsessions. So if you don't know, synesthesia is the idea that your senses can be crossed. So for example, you might experience, um, you might taste colors, or you might hear colors, or you might uh, see sounds, things like that. And uh, one of the classic examples of this would be graphene, uh, graphene color synesthesia. So what that is, is that when people look at letters, some people experience them as being colored. So the letter A might be red, or the letter B might be blue. And um, I think that this topic, this topic gets really interesting because it, it basically ties back into the, the idea of the Phoenix effect, which uh, some of you might remember is the idea that the effect of psychedelic drugs is that it induces a state of mind that is similar to uh, children So come join me as we do this fascinating topic. I'll get right into it. Hi, and welcome. This is Quirky Science, where we discuss crazy ideas. Welcome to the podcast. I am your host, Gage Clark. that synesthesia is actually kind of the basis of the way that we perceive the world. As an example, um, while we might not see the letter A as being read, for at least most of us don't, uh, we, we do see the word dog to be associated to the creature dog, right? We hear the sound dog, and this triggers a bunch of things in our brain, like the letter combinations, the visual symbols that are used to spell the word, and also it brings up the imagery of a creature that we're familiar with, and it does this pretty pretty, uh, hastily. So I would argue that that is actually still synesthesia. And, uh, so while we might not see the letter A as being red, we do see the word red as being associated to the color. I, so what I would say about that is that the reason that we don't have this graphene color synesthesia is simply because we're not taught to think that way. That most of, most of what we have left of 
well, I shouldn't say left yet, but you'll see what I mean by that soon. So most of our synesthesia that we have in our adult life is it's going to be the things that society has trained us to perceive. So I think that language is hugely a synesthetic process. And uh, I, I would even go as far as to say that when, when you hear the sound of running water, that the way that this conjures the notion and the concept of water is synesthesia. That the reason that you pull up this concept and that you might even pull up images of water and uh, the feeling of water or different associations that you've made, I would say that this is a kind of synesthesia. It's just one that is very trained in most of the population. And I would say even animals likely have that kind of synesthesia all the time. I think it seems kind of the core aspect of what it means to learn about reality, at least for animals. I, at least that's what I think. So something interesting is that people who have synesthesia, they often have increased white matter tracts connecting parts of the brain. So they essentially have uh, more connectivity in certain areas of the brain. And one of the arguments about this is that they have not undergone as much synaptic pruning. And so if, if you haven't heard of this concept, synaptic pruning, uh, basically your neurons all have, they're all connected to each other by, through synapses, which is kind of, uh, that is where uh, one neuron's dendritic branches are ending and then another one is beginning, another neuron is beginning. So uh, synaptic pruning is thought to be important for learning. And so when you learn uh, and form associations about the world around you, you, you will kind of cull away the synaptic connections that you're not uh, using, that aren't important for processing your world. And so it makes sense that those with synesthesia might have increased connectedness and increased uh, a lack of synaptic pruning. And so with synaptic pruning, another thing to consider is that children, uh, there, there's phases of development where we undergo mass periods of synaptic pruning. And uh, so, so as we develop from childhood to adulthood, there's these major periods that we lose a bunch of our synapses. And so it could be that that is the period where we might lose synesthesia, as well as a lot of other things, I would argue. I would argue that we lose photographic memory, that we lose... Um, some people might lose their ability to use their imagination. We call that aphantasia, when people can't uh, 
uh, visualize things in their brain. So that's kind of some of the arguments I made in the Phoenix Effect, is that that we kind of call away a bunch of different ways of perceiving the world in favor of uh, more abstract, simplified, and fast processing abilities. So instead of photographic memory, you might you might have a narrative that you've created after you've learned how to use language. You might be able to just um, piece together a more simplified uh, storyline that is no longer something like a video. It's like much more just based on the symbols and the words and the sounds, and you've kind of compressed it into this abstract uh, film or whatever you want to call it. So if children make the connection red and the letter A, this, since society is not teaching us to keep reinforcing it, we might lose that ability. And much of what else much of the other patterns that we retain, they might be like things that have nothing to do with language, might be retained simply because of the repetitious nature of reality. The sky is always blue. It's uh, for the most part, right, besides sunset. But there's this consistency about the way that our lives work, that gravity keeps working the same way, that metal when you clank metal, it keeps making the same sound, that certain elements of a human face are associated to certain configurations. And so I think that just the nature of uh, reality following this kind of cause and effect tendency it that is leading to reinforcement whether we want it to or not just by observing reality but things like things like dog being associated to the creature that we know of as a dog uh, this is something that we have to consciously train ourselves to associate because the sound dog doesn't really have anything to do with the creature right We've just kind of arbitrarily decided to assign that sound to the creature. So I think that human language is this special synesthetic uh, kind of a strategy that we've learned to apply and use to communicate with each other a sound-to-meaning synesthesia, or even sound-to-graphene-to-meaning synesthesia. So, interestingly, one of the popular synesthesia theories at the moment states that uh, that uh, it's, call, it's called the neonatal synesthesia hypothesis. And it's put forward by Daphne Maurer. I, I'm not sure if that's the correct uh, pronunciation, but basically, 
uh, there's a couple components that I'm going to highlight from this hypothesis. Uh, there's an increased connectivity during infancy. Synaptic density is greatest soon after birth, and it uh, decreases towards adult levels earlier. Uh, so the cortical regions uh, tend to reduce their synaptic density towards adult levels earlier than in other regions. Um, so I won't go into too much of the details on that first point, but I'm kind of reading off the study a little bit. And uh, so number two would be less domain specific specificity during infancy. So cortical regions are far less specialized during infancy. And in particular, uh, may respond more strongly to multiple sensory modalities relative to older children or adults. So, for example, regions normally specialized for spoken language respond more strongly to visual inputs early in life. And point number three from this study is that presence of synesthetic-like correspondences in early life it seem to exist. So, for example, three to four-month-old infants will orient toward higher-pointed shapes when played a high-pitched tone and will orient toward low and rounded shapes when played a low-pitched tone. This has been taken as evidence that these correspondence are innate rather than learned. So that's kind of interesting. It suggests that certain synesthetic tendencies might be innate. So now let's get into something quite interesting. So there's this possible connection between savantism and synesthesia. There was a blog post on nature that was that captured my attention about this topic, um, and that blog post it explores the case of Daniel Tamet. He's an individual with autism and synesthesia, and he was able to memorize and recite 22,514 digits of the number pi. That's pretty wild. And so Daniel gave a description of his subjective experience of synesthetic math, and it is quite psychedelic sounding, which is interesting. So what he's said is, when I multiply numbers together, I see two shapes. The image starts to change and evolve, and a third shape emerges. That's the answer. It's mental imagery. It's like maths without having to think. So he claims that he's able to do math using these kind of shapes in his mind, and that this gives him the answer. And this allows him to do more complicated math or arithmetic than other people. So, um, so of course, 
a lot of people know of synesthesia because of its association to the psychedelic experience. We didn't touch on that too much yet, but uh, this might be a good point to get into before we continue on to the savantism ideas. So, psychedelics, uh, this they are specifically the ones I am talking about, are the ones that bind to serotonin receptors. And uh, they have been found in animals to, to induce synaptogenesis, which may be the opposite of synaptic pruning. Instead of taking away synapses, uh, you are increasing them. Which is quite interesting, because that ties back into this idea that, that people with increased synapses might experience or not necessarily just synapses, but, uh, well, yeah, synapses and maybe dendrites might experience synesthesia. And what is also interesting here is that there are, uh, there is an increased, there's increased serotonin activity in younger children. And this slowly decreases as we age and go through development. So perhaps synaptic pruning has to do with the sudden drop in synaptogenesis or something like that. Perhaps as we develop, we find ourselves no longer kind of generating synapses anymore. And this leads to the observation of a sudden drop in synapses, which we call pruning. So, interestingly, there's been connections from, of autism to increase serotonin activity as well. And now here's another interesting thing. One study recently, well, six years ago, 2014, found that they were able to train people to become synesthetic. They trained them to have graphene color synesthesia. And when they did this, the subjects in the synesthesia group actually experienced a quite drastic increase in visual IQ. And this is pretty interesting because this idea of savantism, if you don't know what savantism, I should have clarified that a little bit earlier, but uh, probably a lot of you know what it is, but just in case, synesthe- or no, savantism is, it is often when someone has some special ability, like crazy math abilities or photographic memory or uh, artistic abilities or music abilities, or even language abilities in some cases. Except a lot of these cases, they'll be highly gifted in one area and severely, uh, profoundly deficient in another area. So with autism, the kind of cliche that people might give is, uh, let's say, photographic memory, but being incapable of abstract thinking or incapable of certain social abilities. 
So here we observe an increase of uh, visual IQ by 12 points in the synesthesia-trained group. And so something to note about this is that after the study stopped and the people in the synesthesia group were no longer training themselves to, they were no longer reinforcing the synesthesia, uh, it seemed to disappear after a month or so. And in my own experience, I've tried to train myself to experience, um, I don't know if I would call it synesthesia, but what I did is I meditated for four hours, uh, where the first hour I sat and counted in my mind one to about a thousand. And I tried to do it without losing focus. I tended to get distracted quite a lot. I would think of random thoughts, I would forget to count, and stuff like that. So, so the first hour I focused on trying to make sure I don't lose track of my thinking. I tried to get used to the idea of focusing on counting. And then on the second and third hours, I, I decided to add more layers to this counting process. What I did is I would imagine my hand, the motions it makes when I draw on paper that number, and I would imagine a voice, a distinct voice in my head saying the number out loud. And then I would also pair that with the visual imagery, the mental imagery of the number on the paper. And I would try to make this as vivid as I possibly could. And for every number, I would be thinking of those. And I would try to think of it simultaneously as well. So I did that for two hours and basically counted one to something like a thousand again, twice or something. Um, and then in the final hour, what I did is I tried to go back into my memory and I tried to remember the earliest memories and I just visualized every possible memory I could imagine again uh, in a kind of chronological order. And so what I noticed after doing this is in the next week or two, I was able to visually imagine things very vividly without losing focus. And that only lasted for about a week or two. And then it faded and I just kind of went back to normal. But for those of you out there who are curious, I recommend trying that. And please tell me what you experience what if you try that out? But I feel that this synesthesia, when I read about this synesthesia training program, uh, it sounded like it sounded like it was almost similar to what I did. Uh, not necessarily what they did to train themselves, but more specifically the way that it progressed and the way that it only lasted about a month afterward. And so I watched this TED Talk by Daniel Tamet, and it's quite interesting. He talks about how he shows the audience how you can do math 
using shape instead of the traditional way of doing, uh, I think it was a multiplication that he shows. So he would take a number like 16 times 64, and he shows how you can do this in your head really quickly and easily without the traditional strategy. And so the traditional strategy, you kind of line up these arbitrary symbols of numbers, right? We train humans to associate num these numbers with the meaning of quantity as kids, but these symbols are kind of arbitrary. And then we teach children how to stack these arbitrary symbols in rows. And then we do this process where the first row, we multiply those together. And then if there's a carryover number, we put that on top of the next one, right? Or something like that. Or that's how we do uh, addition or whatever. Uh, and so... So if you think about this ways of doing like arithmetic and multiplication using symbols, it's it, it's it's arbitrary. It doesn't really make sense. We've just kind of trained ourselves through this process and accepted it. But that doesn't mean that it's the most efficient process. So what Daniel Tamat shows in his TED Talk is that you can... Uh, he creates this grid of boxes and kind of transforms these numbers into something that's more comprehensible. Things that are like ratios of boxes. And, and it totally makes sense. And he's able to add, or no, multiply these really large numbers together really efficiently without any problem. And the, it's in a way that the audience is able to understand his synesthetic kind of thinking. And this made me think, much of our culture, like how I talked about our culture trains us to have certain forms of synesthesia, but it's clear to me that we don't necessarily have the most efficient. So what if savantism and synesthesia are connected in this way? What if synesthetic people find ways to learn and process reality using strategies that are not trained by our culture. And this is pretty profound to me. This tells me that we could theoretically program our culture with an upgrade, a synesthetic upgrade, by training the children of the future to have new ways of using synesthetic processes that aren't these arbitrary symbols anymore. We can learn what the most efficient ways to learn are and the most efficient ways to perform math are. And this totally fascinates me because we could train children to become savants essentially it might be possible, I think. And um, so I'm actually considered considering trying to get a, a thing going where a bunch of people train themselves to become synesthetic. I'm really curious to know what it's like.
to train yourself to have synesthesia. I'll talk about that more in the future, but uh, so let's move on to psychedelics again. Psychedelics induce all these strange kind of effects and synesthesia too. And some people get these wild insights. And what if some of those insights, uh, well, I won't even go in that direction, to be honest. Uh, I've talked about that a bit before, about psychedelic insights and what, that's like a whole topic on its own. But I think having insights in general, there is no guarantee that you're going to have a correct insight. In fact, I think most of society is just trained to submit to a dogmatic uh, the dogmatic authority of experts. We have experts of every kind of field of knowledge, right? And every kind of form of truth that we accept into our lives. And most people just completely, they don't think of their own ideas. They merely submit to the authority of experts. And if you were to try to, like for you to try to come up with your own truth, or good idea, or insight, it's expected that you should be an expert before you do that. So, the thing about psychedelics is people start having insights without without this expertise. And I would argue that this is kind of related to what happens to schizophrenic people as well. That it's not really that these people are having crazier ideas it's just that they're having ideas at all most people do not have ideas because ideas are the realm of experts you're not supposed to have ideas and people kind of already know this they're trained to give up they're trained to stop having ideas as children like children have tons of ideas right and children are wrong about much of the world and we teach them about how to be supposedly right but uh, like this gets into all kinds of weird philosophy about what is true uh, what we should accept is true and all that jazz so we're not going to go into that direction so much here but um I think some of the ways that people learn to process on psychedelics, there might be savant-like episodes in there, and that's not necessarily associated with um, the savantism thing, although savantism is a deviation and a, a tendency of perhaps thinking on one's own, especially in the way that we're defining here. If someone comes up with their own synesthetic model of the world, that is kind of like how someone might think of far-out ideas on their own. And perhaps uh, first-grade teachers are taught there are the supposed experts of the age for children. They are the experts of arithmetic and basic language and that kind of thing. But um, anyways, okay, let's, let's get on to psychedelics and learning. So there's mixed research on whether psychedelic compounds can enhance learning. 
so recently in 2020, DMT in animals was found to enhance learning and memory and neurogenesis. Uh, Silosin was found to impair acquisition of learned, like acquisition memory in rats, and at the high dose, it even impaired retrieval. But another study on psilocybin, uh, which is the precursor to psilocin, they observed enhanced fear extinction learning that was dose-dependent, occurring more at the low doses. So it's possible that the low doses might be better for learning than high doses. MDMA enhanced associative learning and non-associative learning in rabbits. And uh, MDA, MDMA also enhanced fear extinction learning, which is relevant to PTSD treatment. LSD was found to enhance associative learning in rabbits as well. And intrahippocampal LSD was found to accelerate learning in general in rabbits. Another study found that repeated LSD dosing restored impairments to learning in depressed rats. In humans, a recreational dose of 100 micrograms caused cognitive impairments in humans, including deficits to executive functioning, working memory, and mental flexibility. Another study has claimed that cognitive flexibility is increased after the acute dose of LSD. I think all that research is really early on, though, so we should kind of be careful with what we assume to be true there. Uh, so LSD was found to accelerate reversal learning, which is particularly interesting because that's kind of the thing that people are claiming in a lot of cases, at least hypothetically, that a lot of culture praises these compounds for uh, inducing the ability to change your mind and go back on a decision that you've already made. Like if you learn something one way, you can kind of take it back and make a different choice, which might have implications for like addiction and maybe trauma or changing your perspective in the world. Um, and I think, uh, I guess we could talk a little bit about music. So music seems to be, to me, to be this kind of inherently synesthetic process. We, it arouses our emotions to hear this series of sounds, um, which I think could be a kind of synesthesia. And this seems clearly innate if we're going to talk about like whether certain synesthetic tendencies are innate or not. This one definitely seems to be innate because of the way that there's a kind of universality of the emotional effects of certain uh, scales of music, like major scales and minor scales, inducing common emotional responses. Um, so there's this thing known as the speech-to-music illusion, which I can kind of demonstrate to you. 
So there is this thing known as the speech to music illusion. So there is this thing known as the speech to music illusion. So is so there is this thing known as the speech to music illusion. So is there is this thing known as the speech to music illusion. So you might have noticed at this point that that started to sound weird, kind of creepy, right? Um, I don't know if I did it right, but if I say that again, there's the speech to music illusion. So that probably stuck out more than the other things I'm trying to say. And so I think what happens is that as it loops, I think that that allows us to fully notice the patterns of relative pitch and different things going on in what I'm saying. If I just speak normally, the pitch is very chaotic. It's almost like melodic noise. So like a melody is the relative patterns in pitch, right? It's like do 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 do. So like that would be a melody and that's comprised of changes in pitch that have relative distances to each other. And that creates a certain kind of emotion. And when I speak though, you can tell the pitch is more like and that probably doesn't sound so much more like music anymore. As you can tell, especially compared to that first one, it was very repetitious. Um, but there are music, there are types of music that totally go f far in the deep end of not being repetitious, just to put that out there before, before I make any other points. But, um, so the thing is, I think that if you think of noise, there's like white noise, which is just, right? My heater is actually on unfortunately, and you can probably hear white noise throughout this whole episode, but, but anyways, so noise is kind of the opposite of understanding in a certain sense. If you, if you, so I do synthesis in music, uh, which like using a synthesizer, I'll generate different kinds of bass sounds, right? Like basic it's called timbres and the timbre is like like the difference of a flute and a trombone and a piano is kind of the timbre like you can play the same notes and melodies with all of those but the timbre changes which is the bass sound and so when you're playing with the creation of timbres, you can notice that you can go from a sine wave, which is a pure sound and it's totally comprehensible, and then when you start adding complexity to the waveform, you get closer and closer to noise. There's seemingly a threshold which your brain can no longer process this thing as having a tone anymore because it's so chaotic and complex that it just sounds like static. It's like it's like when you're in the dark. If you try to look at the room you're in, when it's pitch black, you might notice that there's static. Or if you take your video camera on your phone and you record in the darkness, you'll notice static as well. And so there's this kind of tendency where noise is kind of the failure to process stimuli in a way. It is just kind of the chaos. It is just 
arbitrary noise. You register it as something that you hear, but not something that has a distinct definition to it anymore. Okay, so that was a long spiel for the whole topic of noise. So the idea that... So go back to this idea of melody. So the idea of melodic noise might make sense to you now. Melodic noise would be the kind of sound like speeches. I'm doing these patterns that are like... Right? Like that doesn't sound like a song. And so... If I loop one part of that, like dun 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 dun, that sounds a little bit more like music. And I think that as repetition sets in, you're better able to track in your brain what what kind of relative pitch patterns exist. You're able to, because it's looping, it gives you a second chance to process more detail. You can have the first loop of the of the piece in your mind, and then you can now notice more details because you you've kind of cached this piece of the sound in your memory now. And so the idea is that repetition of things might make things more comprehensible because it allows for a little bit of short-term learning to take place. And so music may be totally the art form of exploiting this repetition to create uh, music. So this whole speech-to-music illusion is more like a sound-to-music illusion. What we're really seeing is this is what music is. Music is the speech-to-music illusion. So, in a sense, music is an illusion, at least in this way. And, um, so the thing I think that might occur on psychedelics is the musicalization of all your senses, even your sound senses. Everything appears more defined and more coherent. It appears as if your vision is taking the form of a painting or an art form. Things look like they have such immense expression. It looks like you're in a kind of fantasy world. And even the way that people talk might even begin to sound more melodic. You might notice that you're able to track uh, people's changes of pitch with less repetition. And then even the way that geometry begins to form on surfaces. Music may essentially be a kind of geometry of sound. The way that melodies exist uh, may be a geometry of sound. And so I think it's possible that psychedelia may be the musicalization of our senses. And I really like that idea. Um, so that it, this is pretty much where we're going to stop now. Uh, I hope this was fa- fa- as fascinating to you as it is for me. Um, I love this topic very much.
And uh, I'm curious, any of you that have synesthesia, please reach out to me. I'd love to talk to you. I want to know what it's like and kind of uh, talk to you about it. Um, and uh, if I end up getting, if I end up creating a program for learning um, synesthesia, I might upload that. Maybe I'll upload it to Patreon or something like that. So, so yeah, uh, it's worth mentioning. There are 11 patrons now. Thank you so much for all your support. It's been fantastic. And uh, on Patreon, what I do is I have been uploading my exploration of prescription ketamine, which is kind of a weird thing. Uh, but I, I uh, someone also shipped me an EEG to use for helping them collect some data, and I've been using that to collect data, and I post uh, pictures about... Uh, like, I post pictures of nature, I post pictures of the EEG data, and uh, all kinds of stuff. And uh, it's probably not going to be just that. Uh, it's going to evolve over time because I'm not gonna I'm not gonna keep taking ketamine honestly but uh, but yeah so there's that so if you'd like to support this project please uh, consider joining the patreon and uh, yeah I'll leave the link to that in the description uh, and I hope you're having a good day it's been rough times recently kind of been losing my mind myself so that might be why there hasn't been as much podcasts for a while. Um, yeah, so I hope you're having a good day. And if not, I hope things get better. I think we'll get through this, guys. And that's a wrap. See you later.